Today on Better News Radio with Pastor Ricky Alcantad. And it reinforces that God's people at this stage in their history seem so powerless that some evil person is literally rolling the dice to see when they die. It seems as though everything is so totally out of control that God's people are left up to blind chance in terms of their fate. You ever felt like that sometimes? Your life feels as though it's just everybody's decisions around you. It's out of control. It's no one is in control. Everything is just chaos. That's what God's people felt like. Hope in God, oh my soul. He is strong and he is strong to save. Hope in God, he's a rock in your hiding place. He's a mighty fortress. As we see events going on around us, particularly in the government, we're tempted to feel completely helpless. We want things to change for the better, and we elect people we think will do good things, yet nothing changes. Where is God, we might be tempted to ask? Certainly, the Jews must have felt like this, being under the control of a heathen king far from their homeland. Pastor Ricky will continue with the story of Esther and how God used this king to accomplish his purposes. Now let's join Pastor Ricky for part one of his message, When Injustice Reigns. We're gonna be continuing our study in chapter three of the book of Esther. Now, one of the things that I appreciate about the Bible is that the Bible is brutally honest about the world around us. I think sometimes people get the impression from some quarters of the Christian church that being a Christian is all about pretending that things are going well and believing that they're going to go well so they do go well. It can become kind of reduced down to we're going to feel good, we're going to be positive, we're going to trust the Lord, and we're going to like keep it together and focus on the good stuff. And the Bible, though, there is stuff in the Bible that's good, but the Bible, though, is also brutally honest about how difficult the world is around us. And in the story of Esther today, the the story is going to get dark. We've seen that God's people are far from their homeland. They are in exile. It seems like God is nowhere to be seen in the book. In fact, God is never even mentioned in the book of Esther. It looks like God is not ruling and not reigning. And in fact, today, it's going to look like injustice is the thing that is ruling and reigning over God's people. But as always in the book of Esther, things are not always what they appear. So let's begin reading in verse 19. We're going to begin in chapter 2, verse 19, because we need to set up chapter 3 and what we're going to read there. So chapter 2, verse 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther, who had in the last chapter become, our last few verses become queen, who was Jewish but concealing her identity, this Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hang on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. 
Now today, what we're gonna do first off is walk through this whole passage. I'm gonna make a few comments to help us understand the passage as a whole. And we're gonna break out into three points at the end. So first, in this section, what do you need to understand? Well, what you need to understand is that we saw Mordecai and Esther do something wrong, something that was against the law of God. Mordecai kind of pushed her to not reveal her heritage. Esther didn't resist, and it ends up that she sins by marrying this pagan king, and those things are wrong. But just a few verses later, Mordecai does something very right, and Esther helps him do something right. So Mordecai, what we understand is he's one of the people working at the court of the king, and there's actually some ruins of this gate, which is kind of the entrance to all of the people that were involved with the king's business would hang out at this gate. It was a space in the middle of the rest of the population and the king inside. And so there was a lot of business and discussion and things taking place around this gate. So Mordecai was there. He overhears something. He overhears two people plotting to kill the king. So what does he do? He reveals it. Through Esther, he lets the king know, someone is trying to kill you. They investigate it. They find out that it's true. And what you would expect to read next, especially in the ancient world, is that Mordecai was honored and thanked and raised up and given a reward because in the ancient world, uh, plots to the king were quite common. And if you were the king, it was in your best interest to reward people that gave you good information leading to the arrest of assassins. Whatever you had to pay in rewards was a lot cheaper than losing your life. So Mordecai does this, and what would normally follow is that he's honored and thanked and promoted. Instead, we read this, chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. So not only does Mordecai not get promoted, somebody that Mordecai has some kind of obvious issue with gets promoted instead. Has that ever happened to you where you've been up for a promotion or up for advancement or up for something and then not only do you not get the promotion to add insult to injury, it's like your office rival gets promoted over you. Now, this is exactly what Mordecai has experienced. Now, it's not clear exactly why Mordecai doesn't want to bow down to Haman. It seems clear that Mordecai didn't have any problem bowing down to the king or to other officials. Otherwise, this probably would have been an issue long before. And this is not, for example, bowing down to an idol, like in the book of Daniel. The king didn't set up an idol and say, Haman, you have to bow down to it. He's, this bowing down was probably just an ancient sign of respect and authority. Like, yes, you're an authority. I respect you. But Mordecai won't do it. Why won't he do it? Well, we're not given a lot of information, but we do read that Haman is an Agagite. Sometimes when you read those things in Scripture, you think, okay, whatever. Now, in this case, it's really important because the Agagites were actually the oldest enemies of the Jewish people. Actually, the Agagites were the first 
people to attack the nation of Israel after it was formed and came into the promised land. So after they go through, and so Mordecai knows this, and scripture says that there would always be enmity between the Agagites and his people. So Haman is one of the historic enemies of this ethnicity that's one of the historic enemies of God's people. Now, Mordecai, in response to this, makes a very strange decision. He makes a huge deal about this. Doing this would obviously disrespect one of the king's major officials, and therefore the king, as it says, the king had commanded people to honor him. And it seems like Mordecai, as we saw last week, doesn't have a problem making other compromises in order to stay in his job and in his position as somebody working in the king's court. And so it seems like his actions are strangely out of proportion. He's taking a thing that is small and perhaps not even worth making a big deal over, and he elevates it to be a huge issue, which makes me kind of conjecture that there was probably some interpersonal stuff that had gone on between him and Haman at some point as well. In addition to the fact that he's one of these people that God's people have been opposed to, and those people have been opposed to God's people over the years. So we'd expect some kind of opposition or some kind of punishment, but what happens next is severely out of proportion. Verse three, then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why why do you transgress the king's command? When they spoke to him day after day, so they're pleading with him for days, and he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see what Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So Mordecai is saying, I'm Jewish, so I'm not going to honor him. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him, the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Hashuarus. So on this issue, Mordecai is clear that part of the tension is that he's a Jew, this is an Agagite, but Haman then has the most extreme reaction imaginable. He's not even content with punishing or even killing Haman. He decides to destroy all the Jews everywhere in the entire Persian kingdom. And at this time, that would be all the Jews. In the ancient Near East, there was no real kingdom outside of Persia. It stretched all over the ancient Near East, even to some parts of India and Northern Africa. So this is everywhere, right? This is all of the Jews. And so he is setting in his heart to commit genocide of an entire people. Verse 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is they cast lots or something like dice before Haman day after day and they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now we don't know exactly what this meant, but it was probably a series of lots or, or 
to us, it would be almost like dice that you'd roll a series of numbers until you arrived at what was supposed to be like a favorable time to do something. So if you're going to get married or you're going to conduct business, you would cast lots or cast per, and then go conduct your business or go marry or go whatever on that date. So he's casting for, okay, what's the best time to do this? And it reinforces that God's people at this stage in their history seem so powerless that some evil person is literally rolling the dice to see when they die. It seems as though everything is so totally out of control that God's people are left up to blind chance in terms of their fate. You ever felt like that sometimes? Your life feels as though it's just everybody's decisions around you. It's out of control. It's no one is in control. Everything is just chaos. That's what God's people felt like. Verse eight, then Haman said to King Hashuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Uh, Their laws are different from those of every other people and they don't keep the king's laws. So it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that it may be put into the king's treasuries. Haman points out the cardinal sin, as it were, of the Jewish people, that they will not be assimilated into the kingdom. See, Persia was happy to tolerate all kinds of people as long as they would assimilate to some degree into the Persian way of life. Now, the irony, though, is as we saw in the last chapter, Mordecai and Esther are more than happy to assimilate. And so ironically, Haman is charging them with the thing that God's people should have been doing, but were not actually doing. Which is funny, because sometimes we think, well, if maybe if I disobey, then like I won't receive any opposition. That's not what happened here. They tried to escape opposition by disobeying, and yet they're still being charged with what God's people were supposed to do. And we learn probably why Haman is advanced so quickly and why he wields so much influence is that he is incredibly wealthy. The amount that he offers would be probably half of what the king would take in all year in all of Persia. This is not like, okay, bring in a briefcase. This is not like bringing a wheelbarrow. This is like, let's bring in some semi-trucks of silver. Where do you want this dropped off? This is an immense sum. And Haman probably actually was thinking partially he was gonna get this, as we'll see later, by getting it from the Jews themselves after he killed them. So this king who had power over every single person's life in the kingdom, what does he do? Verse 10. The king took his signet ring from his hand and he gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as seems good to you. See, this king barely bats an eye. He doesn't ask any other questions. Instead, he sees the amount offered to him, which is essentially a legal bribe. And then he gives his signet ring, the symbol and seal of his royal authority, and then he hands it over to a genocidal maniac. This looks, for all intents and purposes, like God's people are being given over to be ruled by the very embodiment of evil and injustice. We read in the verses 12 through 14 that this decree goes out, and the decree reads like this, to destroy 
to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. What day? The day that Haman rolled his dice to determine. And then I think that verse 15 is just chilling the way this ends. The last sentence says, And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So the decree goes out that, okay, on this day, all crime is legal against the Jews. And in fact, if you kill any of them, you can keep what you kill. You can keep the stuff. This was essentially open season, not on an animal, but on an entire people group. And the entire city and every city, as the word goes out, is thrown into chaos. So what does this mean? This is a strange passage, isn't it? This is not typically where you would open up and think, okay, I can't wait to do my devotions from Esther 3. Can't wait to get a word from the Lord. Just get in there. And then you're looking for like, okay, Lord, where's the good part? And then you read verse 15 and they sat down to drink and the city was in confusion. And you think, okay, that's not what I was hoping for this morning. My boss is difficult. My life is difficult. This is not what I needed. What are we supposed to do in response? Well, three things. First, this passage sets our expectations. What should we expect in the world around us? The Bible is honest about what to expect in the world around us. And the first thing to expect is that we are to expect injustice. The Bible says that in the beginning, God made everything good and all was perfect and all was just. There was justice. Justice reigned. Creation perfectly reflected God's justice, but injustice entered the world when sin entered the world. In fact, a few verses after Adam and Eve's sin, we see the first great injustice of one of their sons killing the other. The first murder occurs just verses later. See, in the Bible, justice is that which aligns with the character of God, meaning that we call good what God calls good, and we call evil what God calls evil. And what sin does is it comes in and perverts things such that we say, oh, this is good, but God calls it evil. In other words, taking another person's wife, according to the Ten Commandments, some cultures might call good, like, oh yeah, whatever. It's free, open season. The Bible calls it evil. Or, in some ways, the Bible commands other things like showing mercy to people or caring for the oppressed. And some cultures would say, that's evil, that's silly, the strong survive. And so sin twists all of our definitions upside down and injustice happens when we move our definition of justice from God's definition to what we would prefer it to be. Injustice, then, is an affront to God's very character. And injustice is everywhere in our world today because sin is everywhere in our world today. And God is opposed. His character must be opposed on every level to all injustice. There are at least three levels of injustice in this passage and in Scripture. The first level of injustice is personal injustice. Haman hates Mordecai in particular. He doesn't just kind of hate the Jews in general. He hates this guy. Sometimes people can be the victims of very personal forms of injustice. 
Sometimes at the office or in the classroom, your idea gets stolen and someone else takes credit. Sometimes a family member treats you horribly and then the rest of the family blames you for causing a conflict. Injustice can be very personal. But second, there can be systemic systemic injustice. So this genocidal plan is condoned by the government. This is not Haman out on his own doing crazy stuff and the king's like, man, we got to stop this guy. No, the king is putting his government seal and authority behind what will be a systemic form of injustice. Sometimes in scripture, the people charged with restraining evil are the ones perpetuating evil. See, in Romans 13, the government is given the power over life to restrain evil. The problem is that there are sinners in the government too, right? (laughs) And therefore, the very people charged by God with restraining evil must also restrain themselves from evil. And because sin corrupts everything. When we form organizations or systems or groups or whatever, there's always the possibility that it will be corrupted by injustice. Sometimes a school board or a company or an organization is unjust. I know we have many teachers in our church, and so you'll remember that there were a number of scandals that broke in one particular of the school districts a number of years ago, where it seems those in power were using their power for their own sake, and it was resulting in children being hurt on various levels. That happens. Scandals come out on various branches of government, on city level, state level, national level. Sometimes injustice can be systemic. Third, Cultural injustice. The whole Persian society receives this order. One of the, I think, really evil things about the way this order is written is it's written that if some people kill some Jews, they will be able to gain from their property and their money. In other words, if you go and kill the Jewish family on your block, you can get their house. You've always admired that house. You've always loved that set of silverware that they have. You've always thought that in that safe, there's probably a bunch of gold. The government is condoning, yeah, you can do it. But what's interesting is the government is not the people doing the killing. The government is condoning the killing. And for this to take place, people in the surrounding Persian culture would have to be so unjust as to actually take up arms against their neighbors. So what this reveals is not just, okay, the government's corrupt, they need to be flushed clean or whatever. No, the culture itself, all of Persia, there are aspects of its culture that are across the entire thing shot through with injustice. For them to think that this is somehow okay reveals a lot about the Persian culture. listening today to Pastor Ricky Alcantar's series, God of Chance. If you've been encouraged by what you heard today on Better News Radio, we'd love to hear from you. Please give us a call at 915-562-7100. And also, let us know how we can be praying for you. That phone number again is 915-562-7100. Or you can email us 
at radio at betternewsradio.com. You're also invited to visit our website, betternewsradio.com. There you can listen to today's message again or peruse our archive of previous teachings by Pastor Ricky. Subscribe to our podcast as well to receive the latest messages as soon as they're available. While you're at our website, be sure to check out Pastor Ron's introduction video telling you about the gospel message and why it's vital for the world today. Pastor Ricky has also created a book that's available for free that shares some incredible better news for life. In it, Pastor Ricky shares his own story and answers questions that many have about what living as a Christian truly means. Download the Better News book for free and share with your friends and family. You'll find it at betternewsradio.com. With that, our time with you has come to an end today. We pray that you'll continue to look for God's hand in your life every day and rely on Him to guide your steps with love and grace. Know that we're praying for you frequently. Thanks for tuning in today. And be sure to join us again for more from God's Word right here on Better News Radio.